I phoned up the restaurant and I've got speaking to this this waiter and he, he had a French accent and I said, look, I, you know, I'd like to come along. I work for free. I just want to see the kitchens. And this guy kept asking me all these probing questions. And in the end, I snapped and I said, look, I, all I want to do is come along and have a trial. And he said, fine. And I said, OK, so when I turn up tomorrow and Marco says, who the hell are you? Who do I say I was speaking to in the phone? And he went, Marco P. White. <laughs> Welcome to Fortnum's Hungry Minds podcast. My name is Tom Parker Bowles, and today I'm joined by a dear friend who I've known for, wow, nearly 20 years. It's a hugely talented chef, cookbook author, and much loved face of Saturday Kitchen, Matt Tebbett. To tell you a bit about Matt, he grew up in South Wales and went on to study geography and anthropology at Oxford Brookes University. At the time, he joined the University Air Squadron, but decided to turn his attention to the bright lights of the Michelin-starred kitchens. In 2009, he joined the Saturday Kitchen team, and in 2017, he replaced James Martin as host. It's fair to say his popularity has gone from strength to strength. And in May this year, Matt won the coveted Personality of the Year prize at the Fortnum and Mason Food and Drink Awards. May I add, this was a public vote, and he was up against some stiff competition from the likes of Mary Berry, Jamie Oliver, and Nigella Lawson. So today we're going to keep it light as I catch up with Matt, and I haven't spoken to him for, well, for ages. So we'll be discussing the wonderfully vibrant food scene in the UK and the endless opportunities it can offer for Michelin-style kitchens to cookbooks and TV. So let's get started. Matt, congratulations on your Personality of the Year award. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tom. What a, what a lovely surprise that was. I was just listening to your introduction there. So I started in 2009, Saturday Kitchen. I took over in 2017. It's not exactly an overnight sensation, is it? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, at the moment, you know, let's get on to Saturday Kitchen for a start. We're speaking at the moment during lockdown because of COVID-19 and the rest of it. But yet Saturday Kitchen has still managed to go on week after week with you at the helm. What's it been like speaking to people on video screens? It's not without its challenges, I have to say. We've kind of, I mean, the, the production team are very good at changing camera angles and making it feel as though the people are actually in the room. So there's little clever things like, you know, they look at each other, they look at the food, um, and you can talk to them and they, they chop and change. So it looks as though, essentially, you're all in the same studio. But that doesn't stop disasters happening with, you know, links going down. And I mean, we've all seen the news and, you know, how awful the links are. So, yeah, we've had our issues, but by and large, generally, you can push through and <laughs> make anything a bit funny. <laughs> it, it's funny how it works, you know, because our dear friend, Ollie Smith, who, who's in there most of the time as well, um, you've got the roster of chefs, but what is it you love most about Saturday Kitchen? It's a, it's a national institution now, but what is it you love? I mean, <laughs> we can get on to cooking later. We've chatted today endlessly about this and will again but is there something that you think why is it a show that is so successful for a long time it's, it's been part of the sort of the fabric of, of Saturday mornings for people it's always on in the background what I love about it now is that there's a lot of big personalities on the show I think that people enjoy seeing the weekly kind of changing aspect of the show so things that we talked about the week before will be brought up that week so there's kind of almost like a soap opera feel about the characters in inside the kitchen and you get to know them in that way that you know when we used to do market kitchen together people used to tune in because yesterday you said something funny and today 
you want to see how somebody reacts to that. And it's and it's, it's an evolving story and a, a family. So so there's a very sort of close knit team of of me and Ollie and Helen. Those guys are obviously doing the wine. Then we got the revolving door of of the chefs that come in, and we all get on really well. And then in good times. We all get on with the crew very well. So we'll finish the show. We go to the pub and we spend a couple of hours chatting about the show. And and that's what sort of makes such a great team, I think. And it was interesting. We had Lenny Henry on not so long ago. And what was interesting, he said, we were talking about Tiswas. And he said, back in the day, they used to do exactly the same. They'd go to the pub. They get absolutely trashed after the show. One person was allocated to stay sober and write down all the nonsense that they came up with. And then that would form the basis of the following week's show. <laughs> now, we're not as organised as that because everyone gets a bit drunk. But essentially, that's what built teams. It, it does have a feel that, you know, I love coming on it because... Best of all, apart from the fact that it's Saturday Kitchen and wonderful, it's live. I mean, do you remember those days when we used to do Market Kitchen, filming 10, 12 hour days, doing two and a half oh. episodes a day, and then, you know, do it again, and no, uh, we don't like this, and can we reshoot it, and blah, blah, blah. I mean, this was a programme we did, what, 10, 15 years ago on UK TV Food with Matthew Fort, and Great show. People loved that show. I really enjoyed making it. It was a, it was, it was a fantastic springboard to, to, to so many other things as well. But, I mean, live television, I remember once you swore nearly, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> there was no nearly about it. It was, a, it, was a, it was a good swear. I mentioned Peter Gordon in a very, in a good way. And I said he was a blank genius. And, and he is. But then that's the trouble. And that's the exhilaration, I suppose, of live telly is that you're treading that line between remembering you're on telly and also forgetting. Because if you forget, you're just messing around having fun. And it's as though you, you're chatting with your mates in the kitchen. And then also you have to remember that you're going into millions of people's living rooms. So you have to keep a lid on, on some of the things you might say. Anyone who ever asks you, why do you bother doing life? Because things could go wrong. And you do it because you're suddenly, you're on your toes. And you, everything ramps up about three gears. Uh, and everyone in the studio is, is running on a bit of, bit of a high, I suppose. Uh, which is why when the show stops, you don't want, you still, you're feeling elated and you don't want that to end. So that's why we, we all have a drink and, and have a chat for quite a few hours. <laughs> but going back, you know, right back to, to sort of university days, the culinary world could have lost one of its shining uh, <laughs> stars because you could have gone into the RAF. You were quite a serious flyer at university, weren't you? I, 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 was, I was a very different character, actually. Uh, yeah, I always wanted to go into the Air Force and... So I managed to join the Air Squadron, which was, uh, as, as a telly friend of mine reckons, it's probably like the uh, sea cadets of the Air Force. <laughs> <laughs> so I joined that and led the flight, and, and it, was, it was enormous fun. It was the best tax-funded gig I could possibly imagine. We had subsidised bars. Uh, they used to go flying on our days off. We used to have fantastic talks by these amazing uh, sort of air crew. It was brilliant. And then after three years, I think you do a lot of growing up in that period. And I just changed tack. And at the time, I was going to London quite a lot. So this was the mid-90s. And London was starting to open up in terms of restaurants. Soho was losing that sort of seedy image. It was growing in restaurants. You had restaurants like Soho, Soho. You had DeLugo from Walt Thompson, which was just brilliant, I remember. Three floors. I mean, that guy was always ahead of his time. So the downstairs, there was almost like a tapas 
bar affair. There was, I remember on the walls, there was pictures of those, those beautiful tinned Portuguese kind of sardines. So you could have that kind of affair. Then upstairs, there was kind of a more relaxed restaurant. And on the top floor, there was another restaurant with a different feel about it. That place was amazing. And then you had the milk bar, nightclub. There was all, all sorts of things going on in Soho, which became more exciting, I suppose, than the prospect of spending 12 years in the Air Force, rightly or wrongly. And uh, that's, you know, where my um, sort of viewpoint switched. So where did you start? What kitchen did you start in? I decided, so I, yeah, I decided to go to London. Uh, I did a year at Prue Leith's cooking school which I don't regret at all I thought that was a brilliant thing to do it was quite expensive but it gave you a fantastic grounding it introduced you and gave you confidence to go into kitchens my first kitchen I went in was was the oak room uh, Marco's three star which was perhaps uh, about two leagues ahead of what I should have done <laughs> talk about aiming high there's none of none of this you know going back home to somewhere near your parents you know going to a sort of pub Marco was at the peak of his fame, his power, his talent. This was possibly, probably the greatest restaurant in the UK and up there with the greatest restaurants in Paris. So how, what did you do? Just walked in and said, hi, Marco, I'm Matt, can I come in? Yeah, it was, it was pretty much like that. I was so naive and so, I suppose, arrogant looking back to think that I could walk from a catering college straight into a three-star. And I think he probably thought, who the hell is this kid? This was before the internet, certainly. So we had Time Out Guide to Eating and Drinking in London. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah. That was the, the, the go-to diary, the yellow pages of, of what restaurants to go to in London. It, it gave you a list of their, the opening hours. It told you the cuisine. It told you the price bracket. So I would go to the, the obviously the posh end and I flicked through that. And there was a choice of Nicola Dennis's um, place in, in Park Lane or Marco's. And obviously the white heat cookbook that drove so many chefs into catering, that kind of triggered something. So I went, I phoned him up or I phoned up the restaurant. I said, um, and I've got speaking to this, this waiter and he, he had a French accent. And I said, look, I, you know, I'd like to come along. I work for free. I just want to see the kitchens. I'd like to sort of, you know, see how we do things. I'm quite happy to do anything you want, blah, blah, blah. And this guy, this quite arsey waiter, kept asking me all these probing questions. And in the end, I snapped and I said, look, I, all I want to do is come along and have a trial. And he said, fine. And I said, OK, so when I turn up tomorrow and Marco says, who the hell are you? Who do I say I was speaking to in the phone? And he went, Marco P. White. <laughs> <laughs> so had he put on the French accent? Yeah, totally did. Totally. <laughs> he was just absolutely just playing with with me at the time so I turned I thought oh, here we go so the next day I turned out and I turned into the kitchen obviously they they weren't expecting me so this the head chef at the time was Robert Reed and he said okay we'll go in, go basically stand in that corner and I don't know pick French beans or something like that I can't remember what the job was so I spent sort of pretty much 18 hours doing the same thing not seeing anything not seeing anyone nobody would talk to you very very sober very serious kitchen and this was completely against everything I envisaged it would be it was very calm it was very well oiled I suppose is the term I mean everyone had their thing however big or small and that was what they did and that was it they didn't step out of that it was very fluid and then in the evening this big guy I recognize as Marco walks through the kitchen completely ignores everyone goes up to his office 
Anyway, so I carry on doing what I'm doing, thinking I'm never going to meet him. This is a waste of time. But at least I've seen inside, you know, one of the best kitchens in the world. Anyway, phone goes into the kitchen. Robert picks it up, puts it down. He says, he says, you, Marco wants to see you. Said, All right, here we go. I go up to his office and there he is, big guy, sat behind his desk, chef's whites on with his, uh, his blazer over the top, pair of um, suede brogues on, no socks, was his sort of signature at the time. And he was sort of nursing this drink in front of him. Clear drink, I presumed, gin and tonic, sliced lemon, lots of ice. He's just having a chat. He's getting all this information out of me. Who am I? What do I want to do? Where did I grow up? All these probing questions. I gave him answers to questions that my parents, I would never tell my parents. And he looks at me and he said, would you like a drink? So I look at his, thinking he's got a gin and tonic. I said, yeah, okay, I'll have a beer. Anyway, so he smiled and he picked up the phone and said, can you bring me one beer for my friend and another glass of iced water for me? (laughs) (laughs) So, oh God, here we go. That's the second one. And then that was it. And then I started, he said, yeah, come come for a job. So then I started, um, yeah, the Oak Group. How long were you there for? Well, I got sacked after a month because I ran in front of him. I body swerved him at the pass as he was marching through one particularly hectic service, he dropped the plates and I disappeared into a corner. Anyway, then I think I had to cook a piece of brioche for a bit of uh, parfait and it was too dark on one side. So I had, that was lobbed at me. Uh, I mean, these were just kind of, this is a standard, this is the norm. I think these things have changed quite a lot. Anyway, so then he finished service, he looks around, he, I'm still in the corner. And he goes, you're still here. And anyway, and then I won't tell you what he said. Then I left. Next, next day, I'm sat at home thinking, right, I need a new job. Um, and I'm opening my timeout guy thinking, I'll try Nicola Tennis's now. <laughs> Phone goes and uh, it's Marco. He says, uh, what are you doing at home? I said, well, you sacked me last night. He said, oh, don't worry about that. I'm to work. <laughs> <laughs> so then I, I ended up at the Criterion. <laughs> I did you? For how long? Uh, about 18 months. I mean, least laid the foundation, you know, your basic sources. Did you learn a lot of those, what, sort of 18, 19 months with Marco? Absolutely. So much. So much now that you still have in the back of your head after, what, 25 years? It's still in your head to do certain things. It's amazing what you retain, even when you think you're not actually picking that much up or not seeing too much. I've got recipes that I still sort of stick to. I mean, he was very philosophical, Marco. So his, his kind of idea was basically, if you come here and you make fish soup, you'll learn to make the best fish soup. Or if you, you, know, you learn to do this, it's the best. This. And he was absolutely right. And you take that and then you see how other people do it. He was all about standards and just execution, I suppose. That was, that was what I took from that. But I, I learned pretty soon that I didn't want to do three-star cooking by any stretch. That wasn't exciting cooking for me. So where next? Then I, I did a summer in a gastropub because that was kind of on the rise. And it was a bit, it was a bit like coming out into rehab. <laughs> I suppose. It, was just a, it was a bit of downtime in a place at the time called the Chelsea Ram. Down by the river. Yeah, it was really popular, gastropub. And that was, that was a, another kind of experience. I, all these things are just kind of learning curves and experiences, really. So, um, so that was fun. And then I left there and I worked for at Shea Bruce. Uh, I didn't last long there. I did about six months, which, again, there was 
a great team. Uh, I learned a lot from a guy called Oli Couliard, who was a French guy who used to work for Eric Chaveau. And it was all about taste. So he would like stick his fingers in things, spoonfuls of things. There were no kind of, you know, distinct measurements. There were, it was all about taste and putting nice things together on a plate. And I still love cooking like that today. And then I left there and I went to Alistair's, Alistair Littles. I did a I did a year with Al, and then I went to Sally Clark's, did a year with her, and then went back to Alistair for another year. You're, you're skating over. I mean, you start with Shea Bruce Poole, obviously, a, a great chef still going. I mean, Alistair Little, I find more and more now, is one of the most influential chefs, of, certainly of our lifetime. Keep It Simple is a book that I go back to again and again and again and again. Uh, it's, it's a masterpiece. You know, Marco was about perfection, three star. What was Alistair's cooking like? Alice, it was totally different. It was, um, it couldn't have been more on the other end of the spectrum, I suppose. I mean, I always remember I was working next to him one day at Lancaster Road and he, he came down the stairs with a massive box of really nice San Manzale tomatoes, a bottle of really good red wine vinegar, some olive oil and made the most amazing tomato soup. And I always hated tomato soup. I was never in tomatoes, quite frankly, until I got exposed to the, you know, when you start eating them in season, uh, and it's like, you know, fruit. When you were growing up in the 70s and your mother was buying you out-of-season tomatoes and fruit, it was horrible. And it wasn't until I, you know, got into the restaurant sort of industry where I realised that if you actually eat things in season, they actually tasted nice things. So, so Alistair was very sort of intelligent, very thoughtful, considered chef. And it was all about simplicity. And he, I mean, I remember having a chat with Matthew fought some time ago who said that there was no one who understood Italian food at the time like Alistair and that was because he used to research he was a Cambridge grad and he used to read up about it and research it and get into it and behind it rather than learning off somebody else like so many of us do yeah I mean him Roly Lee and Simon Hopkinson I suppose at that point of the 90s Crosby Stills and Nash (laughs) (laughs) have you told them that (laughs) <laughs> I think that might have been an Alistair quote, actually. <laughs> but, but they did. I mean, you had Marco, you know, the Marco and the Nikos at one end that were fantastic. But with Kensington Place, with um, Hilaire into Babendum and with Alistair with his various restaurants, it was either casual or formal at that point, wasn't it? This, You know, they opened it up, made food fun, laid back, noisy, but yet still fantastic chefs. Talking to Alistair years ago, now I, I got a couple of his really old menus from the 80s. And he said at the time, he was the only one who was putting six things on a menu. So six starters, six mains, six puts. That was it. No choice. And before that, you'd have sort of pages and pages, like a Chinese restaurant, of starters and main courses and things like that. So that was, at the time, revolutionary. And then, I don't know if you remember, in Frist Street, there was a downstairs dining area, a small bar. And at the time, when they first opened, there was a queue around the block for his foie gras sandwiches that they used to knock out in this downstairs bar. I mean, things like that were just unheard of. So I suppose it was, even back then, it was taking the stuffiness out of dining and and eating well. Because up until then, it was all about French sort of haute cuisine, wasn't it? And suddenly this young guy from, uh, where was he from? Lancaster? Lancashire somewhere? Knocking out fantastic Italian food. And it it was revolutionary. What I remember, I mean, in the days when you were cooking at the Fox Hunters, you know, your, your restaurant, 
I mean, I've got some notes here and I've got this wonderful thing saying, um, you were once quoted as being bolshy in the kitchen. Is this true? I could say yes. <laughs> Straight up. <laughs> <laughs> no, generally, there's so much to bloody do, especially when you've got your own place. I mean, you're, you know, you're running around the front, you're answering the damn phone, you're running back into the kitchen and something's spilling over, then something else happens. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, the thought of running around like an idiot like that now is just, I thought, mm, no thanks. When we first set up, I came down to Wales with those London kind of, that London restaurant mentality and those ideals and just barking a lot. Um, and that soon went. When you realise that if you shouted too much, you'd lose the pot washer or you'd lose that waitress that actually, despite the fact that her disappearing off to the loo in the middle of service, she was actually quite good. <laughs> now you've got to replace her. So you soon learn to just basically shut up and accept the fact that things are different in the country than they are in the, um, in the town where there's a passing trade of people that you can grab hold of. So, yeah, I suppose I was bullshit. I still am a bit. <laughs> Your wife, Lisa, who, who ran the front of the house beautifully. I remember once you were, there was a customer complaining. I can't remember what he was complaining about. It went back to the kitchen. You started live tweeting using language we can't really use here about what you thought of the customer in your restaurant <laughs> 20 metres away, and he was reading it. <laughs> <laughs> well, then he should have been on his phone. He should have been enjoying his evening more with his wife, shouldn't he? Yeah, there was, there was plenty of incidents like that. I mean, honestly, every restaurateur could write a book on the idiots that you have in and the things that go wrong and all the good things as well. I mean, but it's always funny to sort of, you know, talk about the idiots. One of the best, we had a guy, I remember it was, it was Valentine's night and we were closing up. It was a Saturday night and we were closing up to go on holiday for two weeks the next day. Uh, and it was our only two weeks in the whole year. So we, we were really excited about this. Anyway, so we, we get these delivery of fish in from Cornwall on a Friday. Couldn't be fresher. This guy, a food scientist, I think he described himself as, he said that that fish was off, although he ate it. And Lisa said, I can tell you it's not off. It came in yesterday from, from Cornwall. I can tell you the boats, because we used to get these amazing fish company, Kellinac, who used to tell you what boat fish was caught on and what time it was caught and blah, blah, blah. And then we, we used to lightly salt it to firm it up. So we said, you know, it's, it, it can tell you it, it's not off. Well, it is. She said, would you like to see the rest of it? Yes, I would. So he marches in the kitchen. I'm clearing down. It's been, it's Valentine's now. It, it's all kicked off. Anyway, this guy marches in. He's about three foot taller than me. Uh, it's quite a big <laughs> unit. Anyway, so he, he walks into the kitchen. I said, oh, can I help you? And he said, yeah, your fish is off. I said, no, it's not. Would you like to see it? Yes, I would. All right, right. Okay. Bearing in mind, it's about midnight now. I said, uh, there you go. I said, would you like to smell it? And he went, yeah. All right, smell it. So I got, literally got hold of this fish and I leapt up and I rubbed it all over his face. <laughs> <laughs> what did he do? And yeah, this guy is leaning back while these, this little sh angry chef is rubbing a piece of wet fish into his face. And the guys in the kitchen just thought, oh my God, he's lost it. And they, they just kind of run a mile. They didn't know what to do. So uh, anyway, at that point, then I start screaming and shouting at him. And at that point, my wife thinks it's probably a good idea to lead him away. <laughs> anyway, get this. This is the best bit. So he goes back to into the dining room, goes off to the, the loo, to, obviously to clean himself up, and then goes and sits down at the table and wants dessert. It's like, What? <laughs> <laughs> this is not a fetish club. We're not here to abuse you so you can get carried on eating. <laughs>
it was. I mean, the Fox Hunters. It was. It was a mixture of of all those people who had taught you. It was your own style. But do you remember those long dinners that Mitch used to hold? Mitch Tonks. Oh my god! The yeah. Food Festival with that bloody grappa. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> those Abergavenny Food Festival nights were the hardest busiest nights we ever have but the most fun stay up all night and then the next day i'd have to you know go and do a run into town do a demo come back do a busy lunch go and do another demo and then go and drink loads of cider i mean it's a yeah. great weekend <laughs> it was but was it around then when when was it you moved from well you were still in the kitchen but when was it when, when was the first tv moment we had we won a nice award what was it with the aa so i did something on itv wales and then that was that that was fun and that came to nothing and I wasn't really looking for anything, to be honest. And then we had a review by Matthew Fort in The Guardian, which was very nice. And then it, like, quite a few years later, I think about four or five years later, he then starts doing Great British Menu. And he had to put names forward for the regions. So he stuck me forward for Wales. So I had this phone call to do GBM and I thought, why not? Didn't really know what I was entering into. Give it a go. So I did that. I didn't realise how high pressured it was. Obviously, I did it against Brim Williams, who's a friend of mine. He was an usher at our wedding. I've known him a long time from the days of the Criterion. So that was that was a bit of fun. But anyway, he obviously won. I went back to my uh, sort of day job. And then out of the blue, it was, it was really odd, actually, because we'd had a really bad Christmas for whatever reason. And then we'd had two weeks of snow in the January. Where I was st- staring at snow, looking at the cancellations coming in, thinking, how the hell are we going to pay our bills? And then out of the blue, we had this phone call from Optimum Telly, Pat Llewellyn's company saying, have you ever thought about presenting? Ordinarily, if things had been good, I would have said no way, because I couldn't stand up in a room and give a speech. I couldn't do any of that. But then there was, there was this lifeline being thrown. And I thought, how the hell can I turn it down? And that was for Market Kitchen. And it just completely out of the blue. So, yeah, and from that, Tom, as you know, you get offered other stuff and the ball sort of starts rolling. But uh, so, yeah, I mean, I could not have um, been happier at that point. <laughs> Market Kitchen was fantastic because we had all those chefs and people like sort of remember when Tom Kerridge and, and they were just sort of starting off. Um, but they're not the sort of megastars they are now. I mean, it's lovely now as, as they were then. But Pat Llewellyn, who died sadly, what, five years ago, maybe four years, was just one of the great ladies. She discovered Jamie, didn't she? She discovered Gordon, the fat ladies. One of the kindest, loveliest, most brilliant TV people there were. Yeah, absolutely. And do you know what? I mean, she, I mean, she certainly changed my life. That's for Didn't sure. Mind. And I will always be grateful to her. And she, she was very good at spotting and nurturing. I think that was Pat's thing. She, she had an enormous sense of fun and she was so brilliant at her job. And yeah, I mean, you know, she came up with the format of Great British Menu. Yeah, she was she was a really, really lovely lady. And anyway, sad. She went way, way too early. I mean, talking of, you know, you now have the, the sort of position, the advantage of watching all these up and coming chefs. Now, in Market Kitchen days, we're watching them. They've all, you know, most of them become, you know, big names. Is there anyone at the moment that you're thinking, wow, he or she, they're, they're really good. They've got it. You know, not just in terms of Teddy Sheffery, but in terms of talent, like the whole package. You see a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of people I love having on because they are so cool and their food is so good. And they are, there is no snobbery and no formality about them. It's lovely to see. I mean, the one that sticks out in my head all the time is Carl Clark. His food is just delicious. And the way he thinks about it is no different to one of the sort of the high-end French chefs who would dissect ingredients. Carl has it in spades. 
I'm not sure he knows it, but he, he can create the tastiest food. I know it's fried chicken and people go, fried chicken's tasty anyway. But the, the ingredients that he laces that with, I think is, is just brilliant. I love him. In terms of who has everything, I mean, the one that has just blown me away, I always knew she'd be good, is Helen McGinn and wine. Because she, I'll tell you what she has, is that personality whereby she doesn't know she's on telly. She forgets she's on telly and she is so natural so charming and so down to earth and yet so massively intelligent on her subject i think it's disarming and i think she has got everything that telly requires I, you know, i've known helen for quite a number of years actually she she used to come and stay in my house in university when i used to go up to london weirdly but uh but yeah i mean since i've seen her and watched her grow on set she's brilliant uh i tell you the other one who's got that is shivy ramatar a, she can cook, she looks fantastic, and girls love her because she is so down to earth and there's no side to her at all. So I think if you kind of, if you're sort of appealing to everyone, then you're onto a winner. And, and do you think, I mean, g- going back to, you know, the whole television thing, we live in an age where my kids are never off YouTube and TikTok, and there are these stars uh, who have millions of viewers, and they post a recipe on, on, on YouTube, and they're watched by, you know, 20 million people. Do you feel that that would replace the sort of you know, national television, you know, normal television with, with the big cameras and, you know? Do you know what? I think probably ultimately will. Um, I think it'll be interesting coming out the other side of what's going on at the moment because there will be no money um, around to to make TV like it used to be made. I think things will be much much cheaper, and it's kind of it's kind of obvious, isn't it? I mean, as much as you know, I'm quite a dinosaur when it comes to things like this. However, you can see, you know, why would you go as a production company go to the effort of having lots of expensive cameras and lots of expensive studio space and only kind of appeal as it were to maybe a million people you know on a good show you get a million people whereas you can go into so many homes you can go into 20 million homes just by using your phone and we're, we're talking about this now you know the lockdown it's been it's been a unique time i mean for the hospitality industry ruinous but do you think lockdown has changed the way we buy food we look at where foods come from there are some positives which have come out the back of this. And I think for a lot of people, it will be sourcing and buying locally. And I know, you know, as chefs and writers, we've been banging on about this for, for forever. And people, some people buy into it. It's been largely a middle class audience that are buying into that because it's always been quite expensive. I think, you know, farmers markets aren't generally cheap. So I think a lot of people will buy locally. Um, I mean, I'm certainly, you know, I go to my little village Raglan there's a fantastic spa and they, they kind of buy off the local farmers. I think that that will be at the forefront of people. I think people will hopefully remember how handy these little stores were rather than queuing sort of 40 deep in getting into a massive supermarket. Because I'm not doing that anymore. I just can't be bothered. So I'd much rather, you know, you might not have all the ingredients that you want to go and get you'll get stuff to eat and it'll be really really good so i think hopefully that will stick around i tell you the other thing i've been loving is that our local restaurants have been doing fish orders so ordinarily i can't as a punter get good fish unless i go direct to source or you know get it sort of specially delivered and now the restaurants are sort of opening up their supply chain and going if you want a box of fish this weekend for 30 quid you'll get fish like blah 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 
And if I sort of say, right, I've got a special occasion or something, I want to cook a massive sea bass or something like that, they can source you that. So hopefully things like that will stay. In Abergavenny, we've got a fantastic bakery, which is associated with the Walnut Tree and the Angel Hotel, doing the most amazing bread deliveries and, and croissants and pan au chocolat and, and all these things are from like Brindisa and all these ingredients that they use in their kitchens are now sort of accessible to, to a lot of other people. So I'm loving this and the, all these deliveries. So hopefully that will sort of stick around really and maybe people going forward maybe people won't be going to restaurants in quite the numbers they did before lockdown but hopefully they'll be supporting it in other ways like that it is it is fascinating i've been doing another series from l plus speaking to farmers and to butchers and to fishermen and to you know all sorts and it's amazing how many when it first started lockdown they were staring they were standing on the edge of the and they've turned it around, especially the artisan cheese. You look at Neil's Yard and you look at um, Courtyard Dairy and, and, and the work that sort of Jamie Oliver and Jenny Linford have done, you know, putting together these cheese boxes of Great British cheeses, whether it's Graham Kirkham's Lancashire or whatever. And this has kept them alive. And suddenly there's a sort of pride in British produce, not flag waving jingoistic, but do you know what I mean? That, God, you know, we wouldn't usually buy posh cheese from uh, Neil's Yard, but it's good value. It is delicious. And once you've tasted it, you can't really go back. Oh, do you know what? I mean, yeah, absolutely. I didn't know that was a thing. I'd love to get hold of one of those boxes. But um, I'm getting some uh, Westcombe cheddar, some ricotta, fresh Westcombe ricotta. Oh, my God. That, in the morning, by the spoonful with a double espresso and a bit of honey, is just the most perfect breakfast. So, yeah, I mean, hopefully we've kind of had our eyes open to what's out there because not everything is available in supermarkets and we're so pre-programmed to go to the supermarkets pick up what we always have I mean my wife does a lot of you know home deliveries so it's like the exact same order as you had last week it all gets very samey and it's all very easy so hopefully yeah it's it's kind of awoken people to um to, to what's out there really i mean my mate and we're just talking about you know the despair my, my mate's got a restaurant in hunston hertfordshire and he used to be the head chef at the alistair lills uh, for years in soho so he was literally he won't mind you saying this he was he was in tears because he just didn't know how he was going to keep it going and basically you know feed his family and then they come up with this idea of, of opening a kind of a, a shop on the terrace buying all the ingredients and all the stuff they get in ordinarily you know, make it available to the village. He's had queues down the road. They're taking, they're taking more on their, their terrace than they would ordinarily in a day. So it's kind of, he's now thinking he's going to do this permanently and open up half the purpose shop as well. He's making pies. He's making all the nice stuff that he would in his restaurant, uh, but he's making them available for people to take home. When people are forced into a corner, they're very kind of resilient, and very resourceful. And fortunately, it seems to be working for a lot of people. Now, you've, I mean, talking again of lockdown, you've just finished a special, haven't you? Uh, Daily Kitchen Live. We did a, a two-week um, special with Jack Monroe just into lockdown. And that was, uh, that was fun to do. It was, it was a, a bit of a learning curve for me because I come from a, a certain angle, I suppose, of cooking. And I suppose that angle is quite middle class it's quite having ingredients available it's you know clicking your fingers and having things in front of you jack Moreau comes from a very different angle so it was all about you know utilizing what you've got in your cupboards how to get the best out of all the, the things you've got in your tin cans i mean i you know i didn't know there was such a thing as washing baked beans for example and turning them into something else 
and I, I was generally uh, sort of blown away actually by some of the food that she was producing because it's really tasty and it's it's really cheap. And I suppose you know snobby cooks like me who come from that kind of restaurant background would always dismiss things in tin cans. But you know how wrong am I? Well, I mean, she, she, I mean, I, I love Jack. She's another Fortnum's award winner, actually. I mean, she, she won one a few years ago. But she, she's an inspirational character. And, and, you know, she does speak to an audience that's probably very different from ours. I mean, when you're cooking at home, I mean, a lot of chefs, their wives do the cooking. Does Lisa do the cooking or the kids? Or is it, or you the whole, are you a control freak in the kitchen? No, I, do you know what? I mean, especially during this period, I have been kicking around. I've discovered I've got a garden, which is nice. When I get bored of that, I come in the kitchen and I'm usually looking to cook by about four o'clock. Start planning and, and I, honestly, it's, I, I love it. And it's, it's kind of therapeutic just to mill around and, yeah, just see what you've got. I love pulling out the fridge and deciding what you can, you know, throw together. I like having not that abundance of ingredients that we've been used to, I suppose. But, yeah, generally I do it all. My daughter's a very keen cook. She likes creating those kind of Instagrammable breakfasts, usually with some bloody avocado somewhere in it. So she's that kind of generation of cook. Uh, but she she likes to make an enormous mess. But actually, her food is really, really good. And so she's, yeah, my son's not bothered at all. Um, anyway, well, listen, we could, as usual, we could bang on for hours. And, and God, I'm looking forward to getting back in a pub with you and Ollie. And just... Oh, my God. Do you know what? I mean, I don't know when it's going to happen. I mean, it's lovely to chat to you, but it'd be quite nice to just get absolutely smashed again, eh? <laughs> <laughs> uh, listen, I'm not religious, but maybe that was God's work, winning this year and not being able to celebrate. <laughs> I, I, I must say, we, we overdo it occasionally at those Fortnum's Awards, obviously in, in a very uh, responsible way. But listen, Matt, thank you so much. But just before you go, can I give you a few quick questions that we ask everyone on the podcast? OK, so first of all, describe your perfect cup of tea. Oh, um, mine, mine is black. Black builders tea. Black builders, wow. Uh, what's your most joyful memory when it comes to a meal? Wow. Is this a quick fire? No, quick, slow, whatever you want. OK, I've got, I've got two that stick out immediately in my head. One was the meal that got me into, kind of ignited the fire, as it were, uh, got me into food. And that would be in a little bistro in northern France with a bowl of fish soup, rui and croutons on the side, proper, proper bread, garlic, butter, things like that. That was when I was about five years old uh, with my parents on holiday. That was a revelation and it still is. And I still look for places like that. Uh, another one would be, again, France, actually. A long lunch, one of those six-hour lunches with um, magnums of um, rosé sat on the terrace of the Colombor. Ah, with those wonderful hors d'oeuvres and all that. God, I love that. More cheap, but wonderful. OK, what food or drink do you wish you'd invented? I wish I'd invented anchovies and salami. <laughs> Another thing I find tin food, going back to talking, you know, Jack, but the quality of tin sardines and tin anchovies you can get now, I just... Oh. It's phenomenal. I mean, I went to, to Lisbon last year and you, you sit in such great restaurants and they give you a menu of tins that you can choose from or go into the room next door, choose your tin and we'll, we'll open it for you and serve it with great bread and cheese it's phenomenal i love the idea i'd love to do it here i'm not sure it'd work in this well, country they did, actually, they did it in soho about four years ago it was a pop-up 
four or five years yeah. ago. Yeah, opposite Virgin Radio at the time, wasn't exactly. it? Exactly. It was on Golden Square. It was a pop-up. I think it did work. But, you know, the, the quality, especially in Lisbon, which is one of the great cities on earth, all that tin stuff, you come laden back with all sorts of tin stuff. Actually, half of which I don't eat, to be honest. It still sits. They're so pretty. You don't want to ruin it. But, OK, let's go. What's the best way to eat bread? Oh, uh, just the crust. I, I cut it badly, so I've got a massive amount of crust, and then scrape it across the top of the butter. <laughs> That's a proper way to do bread. What's been your biggest disaster in the kitchen? Yeah, it wasn't me, I have to say, but it was the time I was with a pastry chef who had made something like eight lemon tarts and managed to make them all with salt rather than sugar. <laughs> he didn't last long you don't i mean you're you're pretty together in the kitchen really aren't you uh i haven't had many disasters i burnt soup once <laughs> i was making i was doing a pop-up thing for william sitwell at his local pub i thought i'd start with a consomme because I, I love this ain't therapeutic about a long drawn out consomme anyway i turned out i burnt it so um I mean, it was just about salvageable, to be honest. And by the time I messed around with it, it was okay. So I, we, um, we stuck it on the menu as smoked consomme. <laughs> <laughs> I bet we would never let you forget that, has he? Okay, what music do you listen to when you cook at home? Uh, well, my daughter's really into music and she's put together a cooking playlist. And it's, all, it's very cool, actually. There's lots of kind of jazzy bits in there. There's Michael Kianuka. I like a bit of Leon Bridges. <laughs> I'm still on Led Zeppelin in the doors. <laughs> <laughs> Today, a bit of classical in the morning. It just sort of changes throughout the day. Finally, what is your guilty food pleasure? Now, I, I don't ever have any guilt about any food at all. I don't think food should be associated with guilt and good and bad. But you know what I mean. Remember Tin's breakfast it was like beans sausages bits of bacon so i'm thinking bits of kidney in there i used to love that tinned ravioli for breakfast that was filthy do you know what i've always got loads and loads of fatty salamis polish sausage bits of um salted fat lardo things like that guilty pleasure i think that's probably it probably the tin things like that my new guilty pleasure currently, television-wise, is The Repair Shop. I can't get through an episode without crying. I've watched it. It's, it's, it's very satisfying watching it, isn't it? It's great. I absolutely love it. There's some old tatty piano or a hat that people are emotionally attached to. And I, by the end of it, I'm in tears. Anyway. Well, on that note, Matt, thank you so much. As ever, it's a joy. Can't wait to see you. And you, dear. Take care of yourself. And, uh, yeah, I'm going back to my garden now. All right, lots of Matt. Cheers, Sal. Thank you to everyone who's tuned in today. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast series, Fortnum's Hungry Minds, to hear conversations and lively debate around new ideas, knowledge, and the joy of real food. 